Hi, I'm Shreya Bakliwal and this is Women Who Build Podcast. I still remember how my sister and I used to play Mario and the Jungle Book as kids. The thing that fascinated us the most about these games was discovering the unknown with every new level we entered. Storytelling was important to us. 20 years later, my nieces seek the same stories. I went a step ahead to figure out how many games in the market actually cater to their needs. I spoke to Salone Segal, general partner Lumakai Fund. Salone has over a decade of cross-sector experience in advising, operating and evaluating tech businesses. She started her career in the investment banking and private equity spaces at Morgan Stanley and Barclays. and later went on to found a gaming company for the female audience called Trudy Social to fund such games she joined the world of venture at london venture partners later launching the first fund with a focus on gaming in india she has been recognized as one of the top 30 women in mobile and top 100 asian stars in uk tech she is a graduate of iese business school Now, without further delay, I have Salone for you. Hi, Salone. Thank you so much for your time. I know it has been uh, long pending, but uh, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Shreya. It's uh, wonderful to be on Women Who Build. I think it's a fantastic initiative, and you are doing a great job by amplifying the voices of uh, some incredible women uh, that you brought onto your platform prior to this. So, you know, very, very honored and humbled to be here. So, thanks so much. Absolutely. So Salone let's dive into your journey. Um I would love to know what really led you to the world of venture and why gaming specifically. That's a great question. I think you know I started gaming when I was very young but I never saw anyone who looked like me in a game world nor did I ever see many people who looked like me playing games and you know I guess that made me a little bit of an anomaly. Um growing up it wasn't a very obvious career choice so you know and, and that's not a very it's a very non traditional career as you know you can imagine for indians particularly so you know my journey into gaming was a little bit of a roundabout way um i did my undergrad in economics so i went then became an investment banker and went into private equity pretty much spent the first 6 to 7 years of my career on um, on that side of the table and developing a very solid i'd say quantitative if skill set until i got very tired of that world and when i taken some time off gaming just happened accidentally because it was an opportunity that a colleague of mine from business school offered to me to become a co-founder of a gaming venture and that's when my entrepreneurial venture emerged uh, with and the thesis behind that was you know that 60% of the world's casual gamers are women but less than 20% of games and apps are built for them and it you know hit me and i realized that you know if i wanted to see a brown female protagonist in a game world i'll probably have to build it myself and many years later that realization hit to that i'd probably also have to finance it myself but um, so i mean it was a very interesting journey to run a games company from scratch for four years um, and you know raised money built a fantastic team it was a very differentiated product we were building a social world game an immersive social world game for female audiences uh, and for global female audiences and um, did some pretty cool uh, integrations with influencers brands celebs and 
you know, it was a very exciting product. Um, after uh, running that uh, for, for four years, uh, we, you know, we raised capital as well. We were venture backed, uh, but sadly our journey ended a little bit abruptly when an acquisition offer went south and we had to close the company down. That's when I realized that, you know, it would, I had been on the entrepreneurial side, I've been on the investor stroke advisor side, and I understood early stage, I'd seen multiple companies from seed to growth, to some extent, even exits. Um, and going into venture became almost a very logical conclusion and a culmination of my years uh, of experience. And uh, my investors, uh, one of my investors, offered me a role in their fund and that was a fund called London Venture Partners who were actually investors who pioneered investing in games and interactive ecosystems and plays in Europe and North America and they offered me a role with their fund and I very gladly took it and um, and you know was with them for a while and you know they've made some very exciting bets it was a team that made early bets in companies like Supercell, Unity, Natural Motion, Day Fish, they've done over 40 companies delivered over $14 billion in exits. So it was a fantastic learning round. And uh, that gave me the further impetus and the, you know, I guess, skill sets that I needed to launch my own fund. And uh, that's where Lumikai came out of. Uh, Lumikai was, the intention behind Lumikai was to set up a sector-focused interactive entertainment strategy, but with a focus on the India market. So life came full circle. I came back to the market that I'd started playing games in. And... Um, I've tracked the market for the last six, seven years. It's at an incredibly uh, in exciting time. It's at an inflection point, and uh, everybody who looks at digital entertainment uh, globally, as well as in, in India, knows that you know now is now is a good time to have companies and companies in the 2020, 2021 vintage will have very exciting rides for the next five to six years. So you know we're looking forward to that. Absolutely. And I think uh, right after COVID, we've seen so many gaming companies go super viral. I was actually even reading as to how uh, the Indian online gaming industry is estimated to reach about 1.1 billion by 2021. So I would love to hear from you what, according to you, will be the growth drivers to this figure. So, you know, India, I think there are a couple of trends here. So India is largely a mobile market. We haven't seen PC and console. Uh, also, India's trajectory towards gaming has been very different to that of Western markets. You know, Western market gamers had a very, um, very linear trajectory. They went from playing arcade games to consoles to PCs to mobile. They saw various the evolution of business models. You know, so they saw those various business models. They saw boxed games, paid games, free to play, premium subscription. Now, in the case of Indian gamers, that's been very different because they're largely first-time gamers. They're also first-time mobile users. So they're exposed to social networking, they're exposed to music apps, they're exposed to video chat, they're exposed to audio and gaming all at the same time. So it's a very complex digital sociology. At, at, you know, at Lumikai, we call them digital convergence natives. And... Uh, they're very primitive and they're very sophisticated at the same time. Right. And, you know, they're very sophisticated in the sense that they would play games like PUBG and Free Fire, but at the same time, they're still playing games like Ludo, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and it's the first time they're staking money on, and real money on digital platforms, on games. So I think the growth drivers are going to come from the fact that, you know, data is now cheap. Uh, you've got a lot of time you've got 
a lot of demand for content gaming is now becoming very mainstream and the only way to go up is you know it's it's just the only way to go is up from here and uh, and that's 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 exciting to see now you mentioned that the demand for gaming and content is only rising and uh, i'm sure there are thousands of games that are uploaded on the app store on a regular basis so in that respect how does a company really capture a consumer's brain you know i think it's uh, you need to look at various genres at the end of the day what is important is the game mechanic so when you want to build games which are sticky you're basically talking about how long does a game retain a user and how frequently does that user come back to the game so you know no matter what genre of games are you you make whether it's you know hyper casual games which are those games that you can play in 2 to 5 minutes whether it's more casual games which can be something like candy crush or it is a little bit more mid core games um, or simulation games or you know builder games whether it's a clash of clans or you know battle royale games etc fundamentally it comes down to retention and frequency of play so retention is essentially how many times um how often and what percentage of your users come back to play your product within a given period of time now how frequently does it do, do your users come back on day 1 how how frequently do they come back on day 7 day 30 so on and so forth and that understanding that is very critical to build a sustainable gaming product it is also incredibly hard to do because you know if you want longevity of those titles if you want to build those sustainable uh, long lasting companies you need to have something special so you know building games is not just having a very prescriptive way to follow these me- mechanics but also you need it's a creative business right uh, so there's as much an art and as much a science that goes into building games and that is something that most game developers should understand and very few of them get right and that's what sets apart the winners from 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 the rest and and uh, you know bear in mind 20000 games are uh, you know uh, are applied in the app store every month globally and you know there are only very few which monetize very well and how so how do you stand out from that crowd is becomes very critical since we spoke about retention now i'm sure that uh, retention also has got to do a lot with uh, the amount of recall that a particular company or a particular game has uh, in the minds of the consumers so i want to know what is it that creates a higher recall because i see that uh, dream 11 for example clearly has a higher recall than something like a hala play so why exactly is that you know i i think that's a that's a little bit of a different question it's not necessarily about mechanic but also you know dream 11 has managed to gain the market share that it has against massive it's raised massive funding rounds which has allowed it to build brand equity and brand recall in a way that perhaps the other teams and companies haven't been able to it's also managed to get market leadership in a particular genre of gaming so you know i think it's very important to segment games um a dream 11 is very different from let's say a supercell game it has a very different user demographic it has a very different user profile and uh, in terms of how founders can build deeply retentive experiences i think it comes down to a couple of things the first is 
how much do they understand the genre and the audience that they are building for hmm. the second is are they able to iterate and understand have a you know a mentality where they can kill products fast and often we find that you know founders will build games in a particular genre not achieve success in that and then pivot to another genre not achieve success in that and pivot to something else our the problem is that you need time to hmm. understand this process you cannot brute force your way through it you cannot throw money and be able to figure it out and that can help to some extent it will help you attract talent maybe it helps you build better teams and we know good teams can help create good games but fundamentally without an understanding of who your user is and what that genre is and what your retention metrics are with respect to that particular genre it becomes difficult to build world class products because also bear in mind when you're looking at building games um you are competing with everybody from the rest of the world and your fundamental competition is border right hmm. um it is and and developers need to understand that if they are going to go down that path there has to be iteration you need to try you need to experiment uh, you need to fail then you need to learn from those experiments and then you need to try again and you know very famously uh, angry birds emerged out of 51 tries and um, wow. even for example companies like supercell which are phenomenal um, their first two games were, were gunshine was a, was not was not a very good game they had to kill it and uh, supercell regularly kills its games uh, some games are so good they would probably be good for more other studios but they're not good enough for supercell but uh, but even they had their trials and you know that was an absolutely exceptional team so so I, you know, it's it's a learning learning process which can't uh, you can't brute force your way out. Absolutely, I agree with you that uh, a gaming company needs to understand what is it that the audience wants and uh, be able to iterate quite frequently to match the needs of the audience. Now, you also mentioned brand equity, right? And uh, specifically in the case of Dream Eleven, that uh, it has such a strong brand equity. So, I want to know what are the channels through which a brand can make and retain that kind of equity? Well. you know i think we're seeing like among us is a great example of a game that you know was a was developed by indie studio called inner slot and it you know languished for two years until some influencers picked it up and really catapulted the game to to what it is and where it is in the cult phenomena that it's become now hmm. um, whether it's able to retain that longevity and become a long lasting title i don't know but you know clearly influencers had a part to play in promoting those titles and we clearly see that right pubg invested a lot of in, a lot of capital into influencers and nurturing influencers who then played the game and made the game play very popular we're seeing that with a lot of other large gaming companies which are leveraging influencers so it's clearly um it's clearly an ancillary um tactic to acquiring users and creating brand equity and recall but i think still the most powerful way of acquiring users is just direct use of acquisition through the various social media channels hmm. i think uh driving acquisition through influencers uh, is a little bit of a double edged sword because it's very hard to compute attribution um and it's very hard to thus arrive at an roi for that cost so it's uh, it's but it definitely helps so there's no doubt about it that it helps um especially if your game becomes much loved and much talked about like it has with among us it can definitely uh, definitely be game changing in that aspect but 
still, I would suspect that there are two things. One is that game retention has to work for people to stick. So just because you have an influencer talking about it, if the game is not fun or the game doesn't have enough content or you don't have the right levels or, you know, it's just the game mechanic is weak. Um, no matter how many influencers talk about it, people will still churn out of the game. So we've spoken a lot about what the founders or the game developers should keep in mind before building a game, right? Um, now I want to know from your perspective, what are some metrics that you look at before investing in a gaming company? Um, so I guess it's, you know, you never look at, uh, you have to look at everything in composite. We, we look at companies at the very early stage. So obviously we look at um, retention metrics, but, and, you know, if you have good retention, your ability to monetize by in-apps is obviously much higher. There are few, few ways, there are three major ways of monetizing in games. One is through ad-based monetization. And even within ad-based, you can have rewarded ads, you can have interstitials, you can have um, playable ads. Uh, then you've got in-app prices, which are essentially buy, where you buy virtual items or cosmetics or vanity items or skins or you know items which give you a, which allow you to progress more in the game, etc. Right. And so that's that's in-app monetization. And then finally, you've got subscription monetization, which a few uh, games companies are experimenting with. Which, for example, an Apple Arcade or a you know, Google Stadia, etc., experimenting with. So these are primarily, I'd say, monetization mechanics. Um, what has changed over the years is primarily earlier games used to be all paid games, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you had, it was for, you know, you would pay in advance and, and that started with box games, right? You would pay in advance, you would be shipped a game and that was it. And that was largely console or PC games. Then you had games as a service, which happened, which basically means that you uh, buy a game because it's on your mobile, it gets frequently updated. So it becomes a games as a service model. Right. And even, and then, you know, jump, uh, leapfrog that, you then came to the world post 2011, where free to play became, you know, all important mechanic, where basically games are largely free to play. And there are certain elements within the games which require monetization, which will maybe give you some powers, which maybe help you skip some levels, or it may help you skip wait times, etc., etc. And um, that's, that gets monetized. Now, typically, depending on which genre you play, um, majority of your players will be non-payers. So you have to really know who your payers are, and then how do you give them a great experience? And that's that's the art of, of building games, right? Absolutely. Now, I think we've spoken a lot about game mechanics and uh, the operational side of things or maybe stuff that game developers should keep in mind. I want to know from your experience, since you've been both on the operating and the investing side, as to what are some qualities or traits that you see successful gaming companies display? You know, I think you know, there is definitely the one common learning that has been is that you need to have a very differentiated product to make yourself stand out in that current crowd. Hmm. Um, because you know, you need to have a view on the market and you need to look at the white spaces in the gaming market. And there are still white spaces in the gaming market and identify that, understand that genre and then understand your users and provide them something that will truly delight them. You know, that's the magic of games. And that's incredibly hard to do, but that is what is is a major value creator. Hmm. The second is that you have to stay focused on a particular genre. And, you know, we've seen this time and time again, uh, where companies have 
small DAU, MAU bases, but they are massively profitable and massively revenue generating. Um, and, you know, whether it's it's for Scopely, um, they, one of their games, you know, um, has a very small MAU base, but, you know, makes massive multi-million dollars in, in, uh, in, in annual revenue. Um, and we've seen that over time, um, you know, for example, there's a company called Star Stable, and they build uh, games for teenage girls who like to ride horses, you know, and this is a PC game. Wow. And uh, it's as niche as that, but they have 12 to 15 million monthly active users uh, of these very, you know, core female gamers who are teenagers who love horses and that's the riding experience and you know that's a multi-million dollar crossing product year on year and growing so you know we've seen time and time again how you don't have to achieve or cater to very large audiences to achieve big outcomes Hmm. for yourself as a studio or for yourself as and for your investors and i think that's those are two very critical aspects of building successful gaming companies Wow, I think I'm still stuck to building games for teenage girls who like to ride horses. Um, And this specifically comes from the fact that when I was researching on games and when I was talking to even the VC folks, I could not find any successful traits that were specifically displayed by games that were built for women. So you tell me from your experience of both on the operating and investing side, what are some qualities or traits that you've seen successful games built for women display? Yeah, it's very interesting you asked that. Um, my my earlier company, we were focused on um, casual game, casual female gamers. And in India, at that point of time, there was a very different skew. Um, you know, a few, five, six years back, smartphone ownership was heavily male. And as a result of which, access to gaming and other entertainment, etc., of course, was, was not as available that it is now now if you look at where we are in terms of just internet penetration for men and women in you know even if you look at as far as 2019 that's actually become very very uh, egalitarian it's almost uh, you know uh, 55 uh, and 45 right. so it's it's actually now changed Right. And that means that there are a lot more women who have the ability and who have the desire and who are seeking content which is meant for them. And, you know, we can see this also, let's say, in um, the rise of OTT content, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you've now seen a lot of female protagonists uh, run stories. You're seeing a lot of female-centered stories. And that's a very recent phenomenon. Right. So... There is definitely a growing appetite for digital content as well as gaming content for women, but there's very little supply for it. I think it's also important to understand that men and women game very differently. And there have been you know, number of studies which have been done to show that men uh, and male gamers um, typically play for and have massive desire for competition and destruction. Uh, female gamers or let's say feminine entertainment is largely focused on relaxation, completion, and seeking inspiration, you know. And if you look at even the social media world around you, because let's not forget that, you know, current social media is actually just, you know, fancy gamified mechanics, you know, your Instagram, your Pinterest, your Facebook are all 
essentially game mechanics in disguise and majority of that user base is is female and what is that on the basis of its connection collaboration uh, caretaking nurturing uh, it's about displaying and seeking inspiration right um, and that's that's very similar to how women game as well so it's very important to build those experiences very thoughtfully for female audiences and i you know that's a very key distinction uh, which is very important it's and it's also interesting you know there were studies which are done up until very recently which stated that men uh, that the key stress response uh, for human beings is the fight or flight response hmm. but only up until the late 1990 is the scientists actually discovered that there is a second stress response which is called tend and befriend which is largely exhibited by fem- women of feminine uh, you know feminine folk uh, oriented people and uh, that's very interesting right because all your game mechanics and all your gaming experiences are built on that fight or flight response there isn't that much built on the tend and befriend and if you notice all the mechanics that have been built on tend and befriend like your sims or your tamagotchis or let's say your pinterests of the world have have nurtured that instinct of women and you know those are primarily been female focused audiences and you know that's never that's not been by design that's often happened by accident so what happens when we design experiences from scratch for women and you know you can you can only imagine the potential so we've spoken a lot about gaining inspiration and uh, i gain my inspiration by reading books uh, by reading books of people who have done great things and uh, by really understanding what and how were they thinking when they were doing all the great things so for example very recently i read shoe dog and uh, i was very impressed with how vividly phil knight has described his feelings or his thoughts each and every time he faced something in his business or in his life um so i want to know from you where or how do you derive your inspiration um reading is obviously a very a good way to do that um for me personally it also you know i i i spend a lot of time on devices whether it's just playing games or or testing games out or just being on your device for work and obviously you know when you're doing 7 8 maybe 10 hours of that in a day you want to spend some time to recoup that so for me reading is definitely a a break from that um i have a regular meditation practice which helps me keep sane um i'm a avid yoga and a workout enthusiast so that helps uh, helps me but i think most importantly i think you know it's very interesting to speak to and as a vc you're in a very fortunate position to speak to incredibly passionate individuals who are you know have, have these bold visions and you know they're just taking it all uh, for you know with a focus that is you know deeply inspirational you're always learning something new from founders and i think that's that's deeply valuable and you always i, I always learn something on on a daily basis so which book are you reading right now <laughs> i i'm reading actually a very interesting book uh two actually i'm reading promised land by barack obama on the other spectrum i'm also reading another book called blood and oil which is about mohammed bin salman who's the current crown prince of mbs of saudi arabia and his ascent to power so 
that's uh, that's an incredible reading for all different reasons altogether but yeah currently on two books oh wow um you know i've been intending to read the promised land uh, since forever and uh, now that you've mentioned it i am sure that i will finally start doing it now i want to jump back to the topic of building a fund it's great that you've started a gaming specific or an interactive media specific fund and very recently actually i interviewed anisha singh of she capital which invests in uh, women led companies and she suggested how niche funds have a great potential to uh, reap very high returns so i want to know your point of view on this so there are two things you know one is is the market deep enough to satisfy a sector focused strategy now if you were to look at the india market let's say 5 years back you know india is a very uh, let's say new venture market right it's just about a, about a venture cycle old it's about 10 years old and we have very recently started to see exits so if you look maybe like 5 6 um, or maybe even more than that it it probably didn't make sense to have a sector focused strategy because the market it was very shallow you know you didn't have that much depth in each sectors to be able to uh, invest and be able to deploy that capital or probably not even the entrepreneurial talent extent of entrepreneurial talent that we have now so you know sector focused strategies are all about market maturity um and this typically happens in markets after they've hit a certain venture cycle timeline that you will start to see uh, alternative market strategies or you know micro investment strategies emerge out of that and that's when sector focused strategies make sense so one is the timing of that the second is that sector focus can help really drive portfolio returns you see as as an asset class venture capital focuses on return maximization rather than risk management which is very different from let's say other funds like the other fund business which is like mutual funds or fund of funds and you know like just public sector investing it is heavily governed by power laws right because and that makes sector focus so important because diversification can mean tons of strikeouts and very few grand slams and you know your grand slams are going to drive your returns but those odds can be altered when you can drive or derive synergies across a portfolio and really focus on a sector mm-hmm. and that can help yield dividends and you know there can you can drive portfolio synergies you can uh, there are cross opportunities you can uh, you can help founders with with a lot more if you're sector focused i mean for us we understand interactive very well and you know obviously been in the sector for so long now but tomorrow if somebody you know looks at and sends me a saas company or sends me like a, a a fintech play um while i understand the large contours of what makes a good deal versus from a bad deal but you know i would need to get uh, take time to come up to speed to really understand what the key metrics are what the competitive landscape looks like etc etc before i can analyze and comment on that opportunity in the case of interactive we already know the landscape we probably know more competitors than the founder can probably name us you know so when we speak to founders we get pretty deep into the conversations from the get go i don't need the founder to educate me about the market because i already know the market i don't need the founder to tell me about competitor metrics because i already un- understand it i don't need the founder to explain to me the value levers of the business because i already know that so that gives you a much more tangible advantage in terms of getting deals understanding businesses making the right bets and then once you make them helping them and i think that's that can help uh, really differentiate you as a fund and hopefully drive you know 
portfolio returns, something I've seen previously in my experience, hoping to do that with Numica as well. Now, in that case, how does a VC fund make sure that its team is diverse enough? So, for example, you have a banking, private equity and startup experience, which is diverse enough to add insights. Uh, but say tomorrow, if I were to start up an edtech specific fund, how do I make sure that my team is diverse enough? And I specifically ask this because, you know, we always focus on how diverse the founding team of a startup is. But I'm not really sure if I know how diverse or what it takes to build a diverse team in a VC fund. So, well, you know, while, while I, you know, from the outside, it looks like the, you know, experience is very diverse. I, I'd say it's actually very focused because, you know, I've been an entrepreneur on the interactive entertainment industry, but then I was also an investor in that same industry. And previously I used to do consumer tech. So hmm. I, you know, just literally focused my attention on a particular sector. And, you know, when you spend a couple of years in a particular sector, you just get very familiar with it. You, you know, you have you can you have the ability to build very large networks in that sector. You just under, have a very deep understanding of that sector. Um, typically, to be able to do that well in a fund and to ha- inspire investors to back you, you need to be able to demonstrate a couple of things. One is that a you have the ability to attract some of the best founders who would want to work with you, who would want your money. So hence. And that's a virtuous cycle when you have the best founders which attract, uh, which you are able to invest in. If those deals do well, um, you're able to you know, generate returns for your investors. But also it's a virtuous cycle because then other founders want to work with you because you have a track record of success. Right. So you definitely want to be able to demonstrate that you'll be able to attract deal flow. You want to be able to demonstrate that you are able to inspire investors to back you and uh, the third, the third is to that the ability to show a diversified or, I guess, to some extent, differentiated investment strategy, hmm. and how true do you stick that, and the importance of understanding portfolio construction. If you are a small micro VC fund, then perhaps doing growth investments um, are going to be very risky. If you're writing five million dollar tickets on a small micro VC fund probably not very wise because you won't have enough portfolio depth to be able to mitigate or mitigate risk and maximize return because that's going to be very difficult. The odds are probably against you unless you're an exceptional uh, company picker, which is you never rule that out, but that becomes difficult. Or if you are um, a very early stage fund and uh, you are not making enough bets and you're very concentrated, that can also backfire. So, so I, I think there are, you know, four or five things that you need to do while you keep in mind what constructing the fund. Uh, that's And for us, we've been very lucky. Both Justin and I come from the, uh, where we've been in operators, we've been very seasoned, industry, been in this industry for long, understand the industry, also have investment experience. And that has allowed us to raise this fund and that has also allowed us to give confidence to our investors and hopefully our founders as well that uh, you know, we'll be able to catalyze them and help them as, uh, which will help, uh, help, uh, help everyone. It's very interesting how you speak about how the investors should have faith in you. I always thought of it from a founder's perspective. Um, now I want to know as a VC fund, how do you choose your investors or how do you choose your LPs? So we've, we've actually done a fairly curated uh, fundraising process. We, we didn't, 
you know, do a roadshow. We didn't open up our funding for everyone. Uh, it was a very select, curated group of investors that we wanted to put together. I, the mission of Lubikai was to become a lighthouse fund for the interactive entertainment industry. And thus, you know, we had a very focused, I'd say, vision on who we wanted to back with us, who we wanted to partner with us. And it was a combination of corporates and, you know, to some extent, individuals and family offices that we felt could really catalyze um, and who have catalyzed this, this industry in India, who had a long-term vision in India, who were deeply interested in the India market, and uh, also for, to some players, uh, you know, to cement their existing presence in the market as well. So it was a combination of all of that. And uh, that has meant that we have, we have been able to partner with some of the best and most iconic names in the games and the media business who have, you know, I guess, you know, we, we are very fortunate that they have decided to partner with us on this journey and, uh, you know, be with us for the next 10 years. And, you know, we're, that's, that's a huge honor. That's, you know, we're very humbled about it. So it almost seems like great partnerships are key, whether you are a founder or an LP or a GP. Great. Uh, these are all the questions that I had for you. And uh, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. I learned a lot about the gaming industry, both when I was researching on the industry as well as today. Um, I think many, many doubts got clarified. So thank you so much. Fantastic. I really enjoyed our chat. And, uh, you know, thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, I really uh, look forward to uh, continuing to hear all the amazing guests that you bring on to your podcast. So thanks so much.